Hello and welcome to episode one of the Bubble Boys. This is Devin Olsom, joined by LP. Thank you to Max Doty for the terrific music intro. I had a nice little intro written to the show for you guys, but I would be selling y'all short if I read off of it. So I'll just go straight from the heart. Here at the Bubble Boys, we're going to cover everything inside and outside the NBA bubble. So LP, how's it going tonight? How are you feeling after, uh, you know, we're on a slow pitch softball team together. Damn. Another couple L's last night, up to one and 11 for the record. I don't want to say we're the problem, <laughs> but I think we might be the problem. Personally, we are 0-9 in yes. terms of record. Yeah. You know, sometimes the stats bear themselves out and there's nothing you can do about it. But my question to you, do we have a bleep button? Ooh, no bleep button. Let it fly. We can that's, be that podcast. That's going to make this a very <laughs> different podcast. Fair enough. Well, we might as well get right into it. So anyway, we'll kind of format it a little bit, more like a couple games thrown in throughout. But first off, what from the bubble has surprised you so far, or like general impressions from the first week or two? I can't help but notice that every single time that I'm paying attention to a game or a stat line, all I see is random player X, 30-plus <laughs> points. <laughs> like, every single time. I, I texted you on a couple of these, but Trey Burke – Drops 31 in the first game against Houston on like seven of eight shooting. People were treating him like he was like the redhead ginger kid on the end of the bench, just leaving him wide open in the corner. And he was just knocking down threes consistently. Austin Rivers goes for 41 against against Sacramento. No big deal. He's just going to knock down everything. He's still doing his stuff. And then TJ Warren. <laughs> I sent you a text on TJ Warren that I won't repeat. But I've seen TJ Warren play. Through NC State, I think it was two or three years he went there. I saw him on the Phoenix Suns. The Suns unloaded him for a first. They, they gave away a first-round pick to not have T.J. Warren on their team. And he just decides that he's going to start shooting. He's still doing all his little rinky-dink crap. He's a great cutter still. But he throws up these like shot puts from like 8 to 12 feet consistently that I don't love and I don't think are going to keep going in. But they are in the bubble. And this is the one that gets me. What he's been doing that's been going very well is that anytime somebody goes underneath the screen on him, he's just decided, I'm going to hit every single three-pointer. He's shooting 61% from three-point range in the bubble. I uh, There's no answer to that for me. Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Jimmy Butler is the answer. Is that what the answer is? Jimmy Butler is going to get in a few with TJ Warren, and that's that's what counts for news in 2020. That's what's well, going to hey, get us through. You know what? Pro City Hoops on Twitter. We like the we like those kind of debacles going back and forth. We might be getting a Pacers Pacers Heat first round series. Seven games of, I mean maybe it's fake beef. You know they had one game where they went back and forth with each other, but that type of stuff is fun on Twitter. I'm not the biggest Jimmy Butler fan, oh. but it is below Jimmy Butler to get in a beef <laughs> with T.J. Warren. T.J. Warren is going to go back to his normal, whatever, twelve points a game shooting three three-pointers a game, making one of them crap that he normally does. It's just wild that this is an actual storyline. So for some of you that don't know, we're based in Minnesota, hence oh. the Jimmy Butler, Tom Thibodeau hate. So just don't, you know, we might not want to talk about Jimmy Butler and Tom Thibodeau all that much, or the Minnesota Timberwolves, because they're not a very good basketball See, team. See, I, I disagree, Dev. I think that us both being Timberwolves fans means that we're excellent viewers and experts about <laughs> yeah. everything else in the NBA. 
we have a direct line of what not to do as a franchise to teach us the right ways. So I, I for one, feel very informed and enlightened from being a Timberwolves fan. I don't know about you. Yeah, when you, when you said uh, Trey Burke there about his recent outbreak, I can't help but, oh boy, maybe 2013 draft, 2014, mm. 2013, I think. We took Trey Burke at nine just to trade it for Shabazz Muhammad and Gorgie Zhang. In 2013, I was, let's see, you know, 13 or 14 years old. <laughs> so I was sitting in my basement, down with some friends. We were watching. We were like, Trey Burke, no way. You know, future of the Timberwolves. He just came off the big tournament run with Michigan. Right, we were like, right. sweet. And then we traded it for Shabazz Muhammad and Gorgie Zhang. We we're like, who and who? I mean, you know, both of those guys aren't on the Timberwolves anymore. So it doesn't really matter. Right? I know. We've got to end of the Timberwolves talk. It's getting yeah, too depressing. Yeah. Not great. Anyway, so you talked a little bit about the role of players surprising you from the bubble. For me, I kind of went just a different angle and like the overall game competitiveness and like the fluidity. Like if I was just watching the game and I had no knowledge of it being in a bubble, I would think like, hey, this just looks like another game. But coming into the bubble, I thought it was going to look like summer league action, sloppy, players not really caring. But to be honest, these like first two weeks have felt like playoff basketball to me. Although the one thing I don't like is the awkward crowd chance that they try to put in <laughs> and don't even that sideline camera that they try to put on. I, so I don't know if you know the video of Vince Carter's. So there's some Vince Carter dunk where he does a windmill 360 and they have that cool side sideline camera angle spanning it. Right. And they've been testing that camera angle out on these games and then the ball's in the opposite corner. And I'm like staring at the back of a player in the closest corner. I'm like, that's just not a camera angle for me. But otherwise, uh, overall, what have you thought about you know the games overall and how they look on TV in the bubble? I'm I'm a big sucker for the little things that they've done right. I, I like the logos. I know the chants are super corny, but it's just about you mean you don't like when they get a let's go jazz and then just silence right after. I mean that's how it is at the regular stadium. So I thought that was actually pretty fitting for jazz. Yeah. No. Well. Jazz, they have some rowdy fans. Oh, hey, that's right. Sorry. Back in Minnesota where we are. Yeah, that's right. And the Target Center can can get rowdy at times. I don't know what those times are. <laughs> but no, I, I like the look of everything. It, it just having the virtual fans is nice. I like seeing the memes where you see like uh Dirk Nowitzki after he has his face on there at the Mavs home court after he hits a game winning shot in the finals against the Heat. Those little touches are nice and we have enough depressing things. I'm glad they didn't just take up mediocre court you know like a lifetime fitness court and slap it right in the middle of the court that's helpful but i'm already on conspiracy theory track with you and the the sideline cam i mean there was a camera that zipped right by luka Doncic's head and that was within like two games of the bubble going on there's going to be i'm calling my shot right now there's going to be some sort of sideline cam debacle where somebody gets hit by a sideline cam or it's going to get in the way of something and the nba is going to have all these theories about it but it's it's fine. It's a nice novelty to have, but I'm calling the conspiracy. Yeah, my my thing on it is it makes for great replay angles. But when I'm watching a game live, I like to see everything that's going on on the court. And if someone's got the ball in the opposite corner and I can't see who has the ball, it's like, eh, yeah, yeah, not, not as important, right? Well, anyway, next we'll get into some buy or sell. So the first topic we had was the Rockets' offense being the different like future offense of the NBA, small ball, jack and threes, that type of thing, buying or selling. I am buying this and um, it's not a shocker that I would buy this. There's there's certain caveats to it to make it work though. Well, we know you're a lifetime 
lifetime player jack and threes. That's if your I, game. I don't touch the paint. I'm allergic <laughs> to the paint. It's not what I'm about. You're but a Mike D'Antoni, Daryl Moore guy. I'm a, I was ahead of the curve. I was doing this back back in the day. But I think, especially from what the Houston Rockets offense was with Clint Capella, with a rolling big, something with diving to the hoop, to what it's become, I think it's more sustainable for any superstar who wants to run it, and in this case it's James Harden, and just the math. And what I mean is what the Rockets were doing before was just iso ball constantly 24-7, forcing Harden to break down his defender, get into the middle of the paint, and then there was always just another big in the middle kind of clogging everything up. And right now, especially with having a Westbrook, another kind of dribble penetrator, if you have two of those types of penetrators and can work really well off of pick and roll, in this case it's all pick and pop. There's no roll man going I watched a couple of Rockets games, and I have to tell you, on, on the onset, I'm not usually a big Rockets fan, but it's hard to deny that every single time you're getting down the floor, you're getting a quality shot. And in today's NBA, if you're not going to have top-tier athletes, if you don't have one of the five best players in the NBA, the Rockets do, in my opinion. It might be, it might be a hot take, but if you don't have one of the top five, you don't have LeBron, you don't have Kawhi, you don't have Anthony Davis, you don't have one of those guys – you have to find a way to manufacture your advantages. Now, do I want aesthetically as a basketball fan to watch Jeff Green shoot eight threes in the corner a game? No, <laughs> I don't. Nobody wants to do that. Jeff Green minutes are abysmal no matter what. But the ending result is that you're getting wins. In the games that they've done in the bubble, they're averaging 54 attempts. And, you know, Zach Lowe might have covered it in his podcast, but I'm going to reiterate it right now. If you're shooting 20 more three-point attempts per game, and not just 20 in total, I mean, anybody can go and just shoot threes, but 20 quality attempts per game where you're getting wide-open shots for players that are going to hit in the mid-30s or maybe even the 40s if you're lucky, it's just the math thing. You're going to overwhelm the other team with points. And that's what I kept getting this feeling when I watched this Houston team. As I watched them play Dallas, and even going back to the game, I thought Dallas's offense was more – efficient and spectacular watching Luca chuck the ball all over the court. But every single time Houston comes down the floor, it was like an overwhelming tidal wave. They were going to get a good shot and there was nothing that Dallas could do about it. And I think that going on in the playoffs, they're going to play the Clippers and the Lakers. You don't want to match them toe for toe, skill for skill. You need to bring something new. And this is definitely something new. Uh, is every team going to have PJ Tucker, who's the immovable object? No. But if you got them and you got the right pieces like Houston does, I think this is the perfect way to run your offense. As you were kind of saying, I'm glad they went all in on it this year. Like dumping Capella might not seem like the smart room, smart move at the time, but it was definitely a very like Rockets move. Because before, as you were kind of saying, Harden would get in the paint or even Westbrook, and then the paint would be clogged with Capella. But it's like if you're going to do this small ball thing and jacking threes, like you might as well go all in on it, all for it. I mean, that's what they did when they moved Capella. I also think, so I'm kind of been back and forth on buying or selling this. I'm going to say mostly sell on the offense for the future. I do like the Rockets' chances as kind of a dark horse in the West this year. After, I think they have a chance against, so they'd be probably matching up with the Lakers in round two. The Lakers, Clippers, I think they'd have a chance against the Lakers just because they are different. It brings different challenges. I think P.J. Tucker... I mean, Anthony Davis is going to get his points against P.J. Tucker. But like you said, he's immovable. He's going to be able to 
not silence Anthony Davis, but no. Anthony Davis isn't going 40, 40 points a game on P.J. Tucker either, I don't and think. It's not even about Anthony Davis and LeBron. They're going to do what they do. But if you can play specifically the Lakers, if you can play JaVale McGee and Dwight Howard off the floor with your spacing and you can rebound well enough to keep those guys off the floor, who's left on that roster? They're already down Avery Bradley. They're already down Rajon Rondo. They're rocking Deion Waiters and J.R. Smith minutes, which is like the same person twice. So that's not really sustainable. So in that specific matchup, but I guess what I want to get into too is like, I'm already loving this and they're not even in their final form. Eric Gordon hasn't played a single game in the bubble yet. You've been doing this with Daniel House, Ben McLemore, the resurgence of Ben McLemore. 40.4% from three. And that's what he was billed to be. And then Austin Rivers, those your guys who are coming off the bench kind of playing that space and pace guy. And yeah, you're putting a lot on Rocco and PJ Tucker, but I mean, there's still another level to this team in terms of points. I don't think it's shocking that they might be able to get to 130 or 120 points consistently. And just with the amount of shots they're taking, you take six Jeff Green shots away and you give them you know, 12 Eric Gordon shots plus, that's, that's going to be way more efficient offense. I think, I think you're right in a lot of ways. And it works really well with the Rockets, but I think you need – for this offense to work, you need a big ball handling creator. Correct. Which is why I don't think it's the offense of the future, technically, because I think this offense can be run with very special type of talents, like James Harden. I mean, I guess LeBron could run this type of offense, but I don't. He couldn't run it as well as James Harden, in my opinion. Ben Simmons. Ben. Ben Simmons. No, I don't think so. Not this type of offense. Okay. Because I think he needs to be able to be able to shoot, for them to respect. His shot, and we can get into more of that yeah. a little bit later. But anyway, Harden's, I mean, Harden's usage is off the charts. Like, I think it was 30, over 35% usage this year, over 40% last year. And the big thing about their offense this year, too, is Russell Westbrook, in my opinion, has been like one of his better seasons in the yeah. NBA. Like, just more efficient, not jacking threes as much, getting to his spots, attacking the paint, and um, I guess what are your thoughts on the only thing, what Westbrook's brought compared to CP3? Oh, I, I think the explosive element was necessary. I, CP3 and James Harden were both great players, but what Westbrook's been doing has been crazy. I, and what D'Antoni's just letting him cook. I mean, I, I watched some games where I think I took some notes where at the end of uh, one of the bubble games, Russell Westbrook was taking two of the final possession shots, not James Harden. D'Antoni is trusting Westbrook to go and – Make a play, whether that ends up being an 18-foot pull-up jump shot that hasn't been relevant since 2016. I mean, sure. But I, I agree that Westbrook's been a much better fit for when you're trying to do this. And, and as I was saying prior, I think having two primary ball handlers makes it even more efficient with your number about James Harden's usage. I mean, any any possession you can actually let Harden rest, you're getting more out of him. I mean, he's he's more at a little more active on defense, and then on offense, you're, he's always going to be efficient. Yeah. So, kind of wrapping up and going into the next buy sell, Phoenix winning streak momentum. So, are you buying that their seven and zero start in the bubble will help them? I mean, maybe not necessarily making the playoffs this year. They haven't made the playoffs since twenty ten. In order to make it on. See, that'd be tomorrow. This is Wednesday night. So tomorrow, I'm assuming the Blazers are going to beat the Nets. The Nets are locked into seven in the East. They might sit some guys before. But, you know, Nets have been surprisingly hot. But let's assume the Blazers beat the Nets. They lock in eighth. Then the Suns need the Grizzlies to lose. 
and the Suns would have to win and they'd be in. But are you buying or selling that their winning streak in the bubble, even if they don't make the playoffs, will like pay dividends next year? I'm going to buy this. Um, it has been a long time for Phoenix. It's been a long time for a couple franchises, but for specifically them, the trouble they've had, and it's kind of a miracle they've made it here with the offseason they had, like we, the aforementioned TJ Warren trade, you're just dumping a player for bag of balls, basically. I mean, you got some cash considerations. But with all the moves that they've made, the bringing in uh, Aaron Baines and the, just, the pieces seem to fit. And I think that's the most important part is, you know, when they took Cam Johnson so early in the draft, I was definitely a guy like, well, that was, I don't dumb. Why would you? He's already older than Devin Booker, and you're drafting him for a team as part of your young core. What's that going to do? Well, it's going to give you a guy who can play a stretch four next to Aiton and be able to knock down corner threes at a high rate. That's what it's going to give you. You have Mikhail Bridges already, who is a player, is a winning player. He's going to D up every single person with his go-go gadget arms, and he's going to knock down a decent rate from three. And more importantly, the not having Devin Booker be the primary ball handler or have any need to with Ricky Rubio and is probably been the best thing for him. I, I know that he's not undersized for a two, but there was an experimentation period where they were flirting with trying to run Devin Booker playing the one so he would have the ball in his hands more. And I don't think that's necessarily his game or the easiest way or the best way for Phoenix to use him. I mean, going forward, can you really expect Javon Carter and Cameron Payne to give you as solid minutes as they've been giving you? Probably not. I Hopefully the Suns aren't banking on that. Campaign is popping up is really, really funny to me. I mean, that's a blast from the past. But I think that with what the front office is doing, and they do have a – I think they have a few picks in this upcoming draft. And on top of that, they have a ton of flexibility. They're not really – locked into anything long-term that's going to completely cripple them. They have Devin Booker locked up. Great. That's what you want. You brick your Rubio for another three years. And that's about it. From there, you can be as flexible as you want to be. And for a franchise like that, if they can fit, you know, those campaign minutes and Javon Carter minutes with a couple more veteran pieces, I know the West will be competitive next year, but I, I think that the full expectation for them to take a leap off of this. I mean, it's been a, Wonderful showing, and Devin Booker's showing another level to his game than he's shown before. He's actually playing in meaningful games and performing, which was never the case before. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I'm definitely buying their winning streak, giving them momentum, maybe this year in the playoffs, but otherwise into next year. And I think one of the big problems with the bubble this year, which it needed to happen, because it just wasn't smart to bring other teams into the mix that weren't contending for a playoff spot, but teams that got invited to the bubble are just going to be light years ahead of the teams that didn't. For example, you know, the Phoenix Suns, nobody thought they had a chance coming into the bubble. I guess I don't really – they were six games out, five and a half, something like that, coming into the bubble. But just the development, even if they don't make the playoffs, DeAndre Ayton's getting quality minutes against good teams, Devin Booker, Cameron Johnson. But I just think it would be so valuable to them for years, years to come. And everyone's talking about – how coming into the bubble, it was, you know, is Devin Booker going to request a trade this summer? First, even if he requests a trade, he's signed in Phoenix through 2024. Like, Phoenix is not trading Devin Booker. He's a all-star caliber player, number one option on a championship team. Ooh. That maybe hot take. Ooh. Not sure, but, like it. you know, he's coming into his prime here pretty soon. But there was so much talk, especially since we're in Minnesota. Everyone's like, all right, D-Lo, Cat, let's bring in Booker. 
No, sons aren't doing that. End the talk. Don't want to hear it. Enough is enough. But as also, as you said, just like the supporting cast that been, has been around Booker, as you said, like Cameron Payne just coming out of <laughs> nowhere in the bubble. Maybe it's a bubble fluke. Probably is. But the reanimated corpse of Cameron Payne. <laughs> yeah. And even, I mean, Dario Saric is giving them good minutes. Like people look back to so last last draft when they traded. So they had the six pick. They traded that to the Wolves for Dario Saric and 11, which turned out to be Cameron Johnson. And, I mean, Jared Culliver isn't doing much in Minnesota right now. First year, but that trade's looking pretty good for them, too. Dario's been putting some really good backup center minutes, which has been really helpful to them. They have a ton of flexibility with him on the court. And, again, with somebody like DeAndre Ayton, who can shoot it a little bit, but they prefer him a little bit down low. Having a guy like that is just invaluable. I was going to say, and there's so much, again, you know, offense of the future, going back to the Rockets thing, like with the Suns, I mean, I don't think that works with them because, you know, they have DeAndre Ayton in the paint. Now going back to the draft, was Luka Doncic maybe the smarter pick? Maybe, but people, I think people focus so much in on Luka Doncic and Trey Young out of that draft class. DeAndre Ayton is a heck of a player. The dude is a... All-star, future all-star, in my opinion. Right. NBA caliber center. He's big, down on the low block, still could improve on defense, in my opinion. Maybe stay out of a little more foul trouble. And then also very underrated move this summer, bringing in Ricky Rubio. Maybe mentorship to Devin Booker, but also another ball handler, as you were saying Mm -hmm. before. Trying to play Devin Booker at the one isn't smart. Now, I'm not very unbiased towards Ricky Rubio. One of my favorite players in the NBA. Coming from Minnesota, but hey. I think his, I mean, his experience, I mean, he hasn't been averaging as many assists as he normally does, but, you know, again, balls in Booker's hands a lot. But when Booker needs a break or when Booker's out, Rubio on the court, he can still facilitate with the best of them in the NBA. And the biggest thing for me is when you talk about team construction and why I'm so confident in this team going forward is you've already hit the home run with your pick, right? You already have the bona fide guard, merging superstar type player. And so now when you have that, you don't have to hit another home run. You don't have to take your shot on another guy. I mean, not yet, as I guess is more of my point. You have that building block. You can go with a couple singles and doubles. You can get your Mikhail Bridges, your Cam Johnsons. You can be patient with who you're drafting and how you're drafting and really form this roster in a way to become a championship contender because I don't think that's anybody's expectation next year for them. But with a couple more solid drafts and there's going to be a ton of cap room freeing up for them, you're able to bring in another piece that's a little bit already established. You, you can make some noise with this roster. So that's why I'm very confident of them going forward. All right. So up next, we have buy or sell the Toronto Raptors as NBA title contenders. What do you got? Devin, I'm buying, but I have, you know, we're, we're going to be honest here. We're going to lay our cards on the table. There is no team that is a coach's dream more than the Toronto Raptors. I am a coach, and that can skew some of my things, but some things I like to see, you constantly see clips of these guys moving the ball all over the court. They're winning the transition battle. They're just outrunning every single team. They're outworking every single team on both ends. They're not giving up transition points, and they're scoring in transition like crazy. And, again, the part this is the most coachy, they have six guys averaging double figures on that roster. Six. It's full of guys who are just, they're giving you something. They're not guys coming on the court. And again, we talk about the pieces fitting. Chris Boucher might weigh as much as I do and have 10 inches of height on me. Not ideal for an NBA player. But at least he's going out there and he's tipping balls around. He's swatting shots. He's 
He's making plays. He's sprinting everywhere while he's on the court. He might only get 12 minutes a game, but he's at least making an impact while he's on the court. And it seems like their roster from top to bottom is doing that. They've just had excellent player development. They trust each other. And they have guys who've now done it. I know this sounds very narrative but you won the title. Cool. I didn't think this would be the same team coming back, but the way that they've pivoted from the Kawhi-driven, get the ball in his hands at the nail or at the elbow and let him work type of offense, everybody feeds off that to this transition, Pascal Siakam hard-cutting, Fred Van Vliet pick-and-roll. Like Every single piece that they have does something different that makes their offense not stagnant. Now, in the half court, that's not bearing out right now. In the bubble alone, I believe they're like a bottom 10 team in half court offense efficiency. Not what you want going into playoff series when you have ambitions of taking on the Bucks, taking on the Celtics most likely in your next playoff series. And by the way, that Celtics game shook me pretty good. Uh, Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry did look very bothered by the length and athleticism of the Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Marcus Smart rotation. But I'm still confident that they'll find a way with Nick Nurse to keep teams off kilter, find hidden points here or there to get them to win games. And truthfully, if Milwaukee doesn't pick up their pace of play and their style, well, not even their pace of play, just the quality of their play, they've, they've looked very disjointed through this bubble process. I don't see why Toronto isn't going to be knocking on the door for my my hope for the finals, which would be Toronto on the Clippers. I want the Kawhi showdown. I want I want that man back facing his old team. Give me all of that. That's delicious to me. But Toronto is a real contender here. They have plenty of veteran players. They're, they're locked and loaded right now. Yeah. Everything you said, but no. So, <sighs> not happening. Nope. I got the Bucks, Celtics, Heat. And before the Simmons injury, Sixers, all above the Raptors when it comes to playoff time. Regular season, even into the playoffs, like you said, great transition team. You know, Siakam's cutting to the hoop. Fred Van Vliet's doing a lot of things in the pick and roll. Kyle Lowry's kind of a do-it-all point guard. But that go-to guy, I've seen so much stuff on Twitter. Like, is this Raptors team better than last year without Kawhi? I'm like, are you kidding is this Raptors team better without a top five player in the NBA on their roster? No. Like, no. Just I, stop. I want to believe, Dev. No, I want to believe. What are you What are you doing at the end of the game? So when you're saying they've been struggling in the half-court offense, playoff basketball becomes a lot of half-court offense. Towards the end of the game in the fourth quarter, last year in the fourth quarter, Kawhi was their leading scorer in the fourth quarter. He was averaging six and a half points in the fourth quarter. Six over six in the playoffs in the fourth quarter. This year, Pascal stepped up 5.6 in the fourth quarter. And they're really spread out, like you said. Norman Powell, Van Vliet, and Lowry are also kind of right around that number. But they have one of the top three defenses in the league. That'll play in the playoffs. But just the lack of a go-to guy, you know, like you said, give Kawhi the ball at the free throw line and let him work. It's just providing me too much halt, I guess in terms of their playoff success. I think they'll struggle with Milwaukee if they get that far. I think they'd struggle with the Celtics. Maybe not anymore with the Simmons injury with the Sixers, but because at the beginning of the year, I picked the Sixers going to the finals, and everyone was like, yeah, what kind of pick was that? You know, beginning of the year, it was fine, but as the season went on, the Horford thing wasn't really looking well. But even at the beginning of the bubble, I was like, I'm sticking with it. I think this team can figure it out. Maybe not. Maybe more biased because I kind of wanted my – beginning of the season prediction to be right but 
with with Simmons, I think that Sixers team would have still done some damage in the East. But as far as the Raptors title contenders, you will not be seeing them in the NBA Finals this year. Mark my words. I mean, it would be a long shot. And to answer that, if I could get a rebuttal, would be the answer is Pascal Siakam. And it has to be. Yeah. It, that's the only player that has any sort of athletic profile, history, shot-making ability to be that type of guy. And I'm not sure if he's there yet. It's nice to have your outlets, and being surrounded by shooting is nice. You know, if OG Ananobi can keep his three-point percentage above that 38% clip, you're going to be able to keep him on the floor. I, I believe that as a cohesive unit, they're not better than last year. But it's a crapshoot in here, man. I, if you're talking just about a title contender, somebody who could, if they reach their ceiling, reach those NBA finals, I think they're definitely in play. Absolutely. I mean, they're – no, just never mind. They're, they're in play. <laughs> I want to believe it, but come playoff time, I, I'm not buying the Toronto Raptors. I'll see you tonight. I'll, I'll see you when it's Raptors yes, Bucks. Yes. Well, we'll see if we get there. All right, moving on. We'll get into some nothing, something, or everything. So up first, Ben Simmons' injury for Philadelphia's postseason play and their hopes of advancing in the playoffs. Dan, I'm so glad that you asked this question, specifically right on the heels of my Raptors talk, because there is not a lot about this team that I'm enjoying right now. During the season, there was maybe two times I could remember where I thought that the 76ers were truly clicking and dangerous. But the exits of J.J. Redick and Jimmy Butler have just been crippling to watch. It is not a beautiful brand of basketball. If I'm the GM of this team, I'm in a bit of a panic and a bit of a bind as well. Through 2023, they have Tobias Harris, Al Horford at 37 years old then, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. All their contracts will be $132 million combined. For reference, the salary cap this year is $109 million. So either the Sixers are finding a revolutionary way to play with four, or they're going to have to find a way to retool very quickly because the pieces are just not fitting together. The Al Horford experiment has been a bit of a disaster. He's not the same guy that they thought they were getting from Boston who's going to solidify that defense even more. Tobias Harris is what he is, but I do not want to be paying him $40 million. And then you have Ben Simmons, who this is the best version of Ben Simmons' deal you're going to get. It was $8 million this year. Next year, immediately jumps up $30 million. And he's the one piece that I feel the most bad for. Because I think in a different group setting, and we talked earlier about the Houston version of the offense, where he can be the primary ball handler and his responsibility is not to just be left wide open or be in the dunker spot come playoff time. Because that's what he was resorted to last playoffs. It was Jimmy Butler handling the ball, creating all the primary offense, running the pick and rolls. And Ben Simmons just stood three feet right next to the hoop, being able to hopefully catch a pass and put a dunk in. I think he has the ability to create, but all in all, this, the pieces don't fit here. So for me, their play is everything. I think this is indicative of who this team is. I think that they are going to play poorly. I don't like their chances coming out of the East right now. I, I don't think that they might even make it out of the first round, given the current circumstances, especially if Simmons isn't going to come back and be a useful part of their team. That's going to give you 30 Shake Milton minutes to kind of figure out, which 
I mean, almost result in a fist fight. What else could go wrong, right? So all in all, not a big fan of Philly this year. Yeah, so I gave you my a little spiel about how I was high on Philly at the beginning of the year. And still, I mean, still at the beginning of the bubble, I was high on Philly. But like you said, a lot of the moves this summer hurt them a ton. Like, I think Jimmy Butler and J.J. Redick, those were the two mm -hmm. obvious biggest losses. But J.J. Redick was so important when Ben Simmons was on the court. Spacing, I mean, he, he's, he did it in New Orleans again this year. But just spacing and being able to fire from anywhere was just – so important for that team. Now they're lacking that. Like you said, they're kind of relying on like Shake Milton or Tobias Harris to try to figure that out. That's the other one is Tobias Harris. I don't know what they're thinking of giving him a max contract. In my opinion, he's a nice role player, a nice piece on a team. But, you know, when you have a max contract player, you're looking for more production than Tobias Harris. And the other angle that I would have taken for Philly last summer is bring Jimmy Butler back because then I think you can figure it out. And maybe Ben Simmons doesn't fit on that team, but in my opinion, Jimmy Butler and Joel Embiid, I think that's a, I mean, that's a title contender in my opinion. If you have Jimmy Butler leading that team without Ben Simmons in the dunker spot, and that's the other thing that didn't make sense to me is Brett Brown was kind of going back to that a little bit, even in the bubble. He said that he wanted to play, move Al Horford to the bench, put Ben Simmons out at the four, and I think it was Shake Milton coming in and starting to give them another shooter, but... I, don't know, I think Philly's completely misusing Ben Simmons. Like you said, he needs spacing on the floor. Unlike you, I don't think he would work in a Houston-type offense where they're just jacking threes, but I think there needs to be a little more resemblance of play, formation, some type of playbook around him where I don't think he's all as free-flowing as, say, James Harden because I do think he needs – in that offense, in my opinion, the ball handler has to be respected as – somewhat of a shooter and you could argue you know russell westbrook maybe not as much but you, i mean ben simmons is even way below russell westbrook as a shooter right from downtown or in the mid-range but i mean that's my take on it i mean they're 20 below bottom 10 in the league in offense this year they just don't fit and yet somehow in my mind i want them to fit so bad where i just kept telling myself they'll figure it out they have so much Theoretically, they have so much talent. You look at Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, Tobias Harris, an older version of Al Horford, I guess. But in my mind, it should work. And it just, when you watch him on the floor, it's like, ah, it's just not, not what you want it to be. Well, I think internally, too, they've just invested so much in the belief that Ben Simmons will figure out some version of a shooting game. Not even, it doesn't have to be threes. Just some version where when he's going off the dribble, they're going to give him everything until about the elbow. But he's not even doing that right now. He's not even fussing with that. He, he's not, he doesn't even look to shoot an elbow jumper, which, again, not your most efficient shot with today's NBA, but teams are just packing the paint on him. They're throwing extra bodies. They're forcing the ball out of his hands. And last, last offseason, I mean, I don't know why they didn't see the J.J. Redick thing from a mile away. I feel like most of the fans, most of the people who were paying attention to that team really knew the importance of J.J. Redick. And now you're stuck with a $130 million bind and you got to figure out a way to pivot because I don't think anybody's going to take that Horford contract. I don't think anybody's going to take Tobias Harris at his number, which means that from last offseason, you've just pigeonholed yourself into probably either riding this out and using the prime of a bead to see if you can make this work with some draft picks and some you know salary minimum guys, or you're going to have to deal sentence. And that's the corner that you've painted yourselves into. And at this point, 
as crazy as it sounds, as unlikely as it probably is going to be for that city, I think you got to deal Simmons because the pieces don't fit. This is not a championship roster. This is not a championship core. What it is is an aging core and a misused core. I mean, if you can play Tobias Harris at some stretch four minutes, you can really get some legs out of it, but he's being forced into the three spot because you got Al Horford there. And going back a little bit to the Redick thing again is maybe, I guess I don't know their viewpoint or angle, and I don't know if they ever really gave a great description on why they went with maybe Horford over Redick or something along that lines, like why pay Horford and not Redick, but maybe their angle was defense. And I mean, people, people complain about JJ Redick's defense. His on-ball defense is not great, but he's a great team defender. He knows where to be. He knows his spots and he knows, like he knows where to be on the floor. He's not going to hurt you when he's on the floor on defense. In my opinion, you can kind of hide him off ball a little bit if you need to. But that what that Horford move did, especially with Simmons, is it clogs the paint so much. Now you have Simmons, who's not a – I mean, I was, I was going to say not a great shooter, but he just can't shoot. Like he, I don't know why I was even thinking not a great shooter. <laughs> Simmons can't shoot. I mean, Horford and Embiid, yeah, they have some type of shot from three, but, I mean, it's respectable, but it's not an elite three-point shot. And, I mean, like you said, the, the pieces don't match. And the other thing with Ben Simmons is there's a lot of talk on Twitter going around that maybe Ben Simmons, you know, he's showing these workouts of him knocking down corner threes, knocking down keys from the threes from the top of the key. And people are like, well, you know, maybe he's just not going to shoot till he knows he can shoot 40% from three, 30% from three for Ben. So 25% from three, some kind of shot from out there would help that team immensely. I think he needs to go Rick Barry. I think he oh, needs boy. to go full blown. Two hands on the ball, granny shot, get those feet set, because they're giving him enough space, I swear you can get it off still. I mean, otherwise, it's, it's like Dwight Howard with free throws at this point. I, I agree, it's so mental. To the point now, if you're watching Dwight shoot free throws, he's standing like a foot and a half behind the free throw line. And with Ben Simmons, I just he gets to that part of the floor, and he's he doesn't want it. It looks farther for him. Maybe he should go like three feet farther back from the three-point line. Dwight, Dwight Howard approach. You know, I, I don't think there's a single thing in my entire life that I would ever want to take the Dwight Howard approach to. <laughs> so if you're going to put that in there, I, I think I'm out. You're out. That's fair. Well, enough on Philly and my preseason likely bust without Ben Simmons playing in the playoffs. So next up, the Lakers slow start. They're 3-4 and four in the bubble. They locked down the one seed in the West. Nothing, something, or everything with their slow start in the bubble affecting their postseason play. I'm going to say this is something. Um, full start and full stop. I, I I never thought that the Lakers were the best team in the West, just from what I've been viewing. I just think the Clippers have always had a higher ceiling. They've played an entire season with, like, Paul George taking a break, Kawhi taking a break, Lou Williams going to strip clubs. Like, they're just – they're all over the place. And now you're going to get the best version of the Clippers. And even before all the absences, which we discussed before, of Avery Bradley and Rajon Rondo – I thought that ceiling was already higher for the Clippers. What this is, is I think what this proves is some time away helped teams like the Phoenix Suns get their bearings straight, and it hurt other teams that were rolling. I mean, the Bucks and the Lakers were absolutely rolling. The Bucks were destroying teams. Pretty sure their average margin of victory for the season is like 10 points. Like, it was astronomical. I think the Lakers have just fallen into – what you would expect is you getting back, you're in a funk, you're bringing old veterans that haven't played throughout the season and Deion Waiters and J.R. Smith, and you're just saying, all right, LeBron, well, we got Alex Caruso. 
is that good enough? Is that good for you? And you're seeing the results. They're not as fluid on offense. Guys are playing a little bit out of position. Your JaVale McGee, 14 minutes a game, aren't as effective as they had been during the year where he just comes out like a fireball and scores six points in two minutes and then does nothing the rest of the game. I mean, the little pieces that made that team so good aren't working. And what it's going to lead to is using more LeBron, using more AD, putting them in more positions to score. But I really question the Lakers' depth when it comes down to playoff rotations. I really do. If you're telling me that they need to go toe-to-toe with a backup unit of Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell versus, how do we know, Quinn Cook or Jared Dudley. Jared Dudley's old, <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Like, I mean, there's just not enough guys that can play at a high enough level for me to compete, which means that you're going to be really playing LeBron 43, like, like Cavs level minutes in playoffs. And this is the first, like first or second round. We're talking about first round matchups. They're either going to be getting, hopefully Memphis, they're praying for Memphis, but there's no guarantee they get Memphis, but they come out and you have to play Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum and a healthy Nurkic. You're like, that's not a first round matchup that you want. You want to be able to walk to the second round and hopefully have a decent matchup. And then you're going to face the Rockets. I mean, it's not been the cakewalk it's been in the past. And I think that this is really going to affect the Lakers. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. If they find that extra gear, I'll eat my words, but I'm not seeing it right now. Yeah, for me, this is nothing. I'm not worried about the Lakers. The one thing that gives me a little pause is the Avery Bradley situation because he was by far their best on-ball defender. He could shoot. He could play on the ball when LeBron would go off the court or even if you want to play LeBron off the ball while he's on the court. But the Avery Bradley thing's the only thing that gives me pause for concern. Like you said, the if it's a Blazers first-round series, I mean, that's that's the Damian Lillard matchup. Avery Bradley, have at him. When he's on the court, you're on the court. He's guarding him. But who's guarding Dame Lillard now? Danny Green. Limp-wristed Danny. Yeah. Alex Caruso. I mean, Balding man. So. Yeah. But other than that, I'm not too worried about the Lakers. They've locked down the one seed in the West. They're getting back into the swing of things. When you have two of the top five players in the NBA – I don't even think they're worried about the Blazers. The Blazers have been relying so much on Dame Lillard carrying them. The last couple games, it's just been his supporting cast hasn't been all that great. You know, he dropped 61 the other night, 50-something the night before that. But I think when you look at a Lakers-Blazers matchup, I don't think there's Lakers in five Maybe the Blazers take one. What would you? You're just going to disrespect Gary Trent Jr. like that. Just right here in my face. I am. With his gopher tattoo when he didn't even go to the U. That's right. It's just disrespectful is all. But, yeah. LeBron, I mean, people are – it's always washed LeBron whenever he has two bad games. And this guy's averaging like 26 points and 11 assists this year. It's crazy what he's doing at this point in his career. But LeBron James, Anthony Davis, NBA Finals, book it. I'm just going on a predictions predictions random. Wow, yeah, you're not podcast. leaving a lot. You're not leaving a lot to the imagination, that's for sure. No, I'm not. But anyway, up next we have the Nuggets young core emerging. So Michael Porter Jr. and your guy Bull Bull, they have been playing well in the bubble. Maybe more uh, scrimmage Bull Bull rather than bubble Bull Bull. But the Nuggets young core emerging. Nothing, something, or everything. Now, there's a bull bull rant that's going to come. Yes. And I'm, I'm, te- I'm, I'm going to just keep teasing it until it happens because it really makes my blood boil. But I'll get into a piece of it today. To me, this is everything, but not necessarily in the Nuggets this year. I think 
For this year, the emergence of Michael Porter Jr. is a nice story, um, but I, I still don't think that his personal skill set on the defensive side of the ball is going to allow them to have the ceiling they need to move past a Clippers or Lakers or any of those teams. And the Nuggets right now, I mean, they, I don't, I don't think they're going to be rolling over anybody in the first round. But what I think is the interesting angle for this is a, a larger discussion, and that's just in terms of NBA draft prospect scouting and looking at specifically injury histories versus production on the court and where it really matters. Where, where's the line when you're trying to scout these guys? Because Michael Porter Jr. fell not because he wasn't talented. Everybody knew he was talented. He was the consensus the number two player coming out of his high school recruiting class. He was the consensus number one pick even coming out of the zoo until all these reports came out. He didn't look right after coming back from the injury in college. And you can't blame teams, but I'm going to blame teams because there has to be kind of a narrative change about this. I feel like there's injury is such a crapshoot to a point where you have to be able to shoot shots at the ceiling. We talked about hitting your singles, doubles, triples, and home runs. Well, there's a list of teams. I have the 2018 draft picked up here. There's a list of teams that don't have any home runs on their team, and they just didn't even take a shot at it. So in the 2018 draft, these are the 10 players, and I'm going to go through them all, who were picked before Michael Porter Jr. Jaron Jackson to Memphis, great pick. Trey Young, Young to Atlanta, great. Orlando took Mo Bamba, okay. Wendell Carter to Chicago, still looking for a number one. Colin Sexton in Cleveland, still looking for a number one. Kevin Knox went to New York, still looking for a number one. Philadelphia takes Mikhail Murray, and it gets traded to Phoenix, but the Oklahoma City Thunder gets Shea Gilgis Alexander. He's probably the one guy on this list outside of Trey Young and Jaron Jackson that I'm excited about and maybe would want more than Michael Porter Jr. But there's a ton of teams in the middle there that have been middling for so long. If you're Chicago, Cleveland, New York, Orlando. New York's the big one that stands out to me. You don't have a guy that can just put butts in the seats who's going to light up the court for you. So it doesn't make any sense for me for you to go into this draft and say, well, guys, we got to play it safe. Like, hey, we took Kevin Knox. At his peak, he'll be a nice 3 and D guy. Oh, okay. What does that do for you? You're missing critical errors. They've just been thinking so long about how they're going to land superstars in free agency. They keep drafting like this. And Denver keeps on reaping the benefits from all these guys. I mean, they're just like, well, we'll take a chance on them. We like, I mean, Denver's depth is out of this world. They traded Beasley and Ernan Gomez to the Wolves who became instant starters. They were like the 10th and 11th rotation guys on Denver. They're just loaded with talent. And then, more importantly, the Bull Bull thing, we've written about it, we've talked about it. It's just it's just ridiculous. He had a foot injury in college. He didn't have any injuries through high school. But because of his frame and the way he looks and the way he plays, everybody's like, well, big man, foot injury. Seen it before, don't want him. Boot him out of the first round. And he went 44th. The picks, I mean, the picks before him, I, I want to do the same list, but it's just mean to do at this point. It's like, would you rather have Bull Bull or Jalen Noel? Uh, you mean the guy who shot 39% in college, Jalen Noel? Like, yeah, no, I don't want that guy. Admiral Schofield, Eric Paschal, Justin James, Daniel Gafford. These are not impact-level players. And there was no trajectory that any of these guys were going to be impact. Like, high-level, all-star-level potential players. And yet, Bull Bull just runs down the floor and you go through the teams again. You have Brooklyn, you have Charlotte, you have Chicago again, you have Sacramento, 
few teams that are begging for any hint of a franchise player. And maybe we're abnormally high on Bull Bull. Maybe he's never going to be that player. But a seven foot three guy who can handle, shoot, defend the rim, and the only thing you're complaining about is his frame and injury history. It just seems like a gigantic waste of resources for GMs just to let this happen. Yeah. So you hit on a lot of things. For me, it's everything too. Bull Bull, I'm not as high on him as you are. I think I had him ranked 14th on my big board last year. And again, if it wasn't for his foot injury, maybe even higher. But I mean, he's a special, special talent in theory, if he can stay healthy. And I mean, it is a big if still with the foot injury. I mean, like it or not, it is a, I mean, it's a history thing with big men and foot injuries. And if you get one early in your career, it tends to linger on for the rest of your career. But I wanted to focus more on uh, Michael Porter Jr. Because I think, again, like you said, so stupid for many teams to pass on him. Like his injury history, fine. But the guy's a all-star, all-NBA type talent just sitting there on the board. And, I mean, looking at him in this bubble, what he's done is crazy to me. The one thing I have concern about is how much he played on the ball in some of the games where he scored 37, 30, 27. Jamal Murray was out. So Michael Porter Jr. was playing a lot on the ball, had the ball in his hands, creating creating shots. When Jamal Murray came back, MPJ's production, I mean, it's still been fine, 23 and 15, but, you know, one of those games, 7 of 18 from a field, 1 of 8 from 3. So I'm really interested to see how he plays with Jamal Murray because I think Michael Porter Jr. sitting in the corner is not good for him. He needs the ball in his hands. He needs to create. Now he's young, so they're probably not going to – maybe trust him to do that so much in the playoffs this year, especially when you have Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic handles the ball a ton. But in my opinion, he needs to be on the ball and on the ball a lot. I think he'll get that opportunity in the second team for sure. He next year wouldn't shock me if he's already knocking on the door of some all-star voting. I mean, he just has that, that level of shot creating. I mean, he had LeBron on him for a good amount of that Denver game and he's just elevating over LeBron. Like it's just another casual guy knocking down shots and I think the hope is that when Jamal Murray comes back is that he's going to take either Gary Harris or Will Barton's spot. I don't, I don't think they're putting those two together to run the offense through. But to have a guy who you can start, you know, as rotations go, it's, it's invaluable to have a guy that can just knock down a shot at 40% from three, which he can. And then immediately you can rest him, bring another defensive guy off the bench, and then bring him back into those second unit minutes where he is going to just absolutely destroy people. I mean, he is – far and above better than anybody that most teams have on their second unit. This is, again, a great testament to Denver's depth, but Michael Porter Jr. is going to light up anybody facing on the second team. And their, I mean, their depth, I mean, it's a testament, as you kind of already talked about, on their willingness to take chances on players. Like, if Michael Porter Jr. doesn't pan out, like, so what? You, I mean, yeah, a lot of 14th overall picks don't turn out, whatever. Even more so, bull, bull, 44th overall Second round picks rarely turn out. Maybe you're, you're hoping second round players turn into role players for your future, depth for the future. But you have a guy like that sitting on the board in the second round. I mean, it's a no brain, no brainer for me, at least. And I mean, I think that's a big testament to Denver, their front office and their willingness to take chances. And you're seeing the testament work right now. Like you got a second round pick that's not developing one or two years in the G League for the hopes that you're going to get to see him eventually. He's playing. He's playing right now. He's playing, you know, 10 to 15 minutes on a good team. That's what you want him to be right now. He's a skinny framed rookie who's got great vision and great guard skills for his height. I mean, 
that's exactly where you want him to be. So he's already ahead of schedule in my appointment, especially for where he's being drafted. He's way ahead of schedule on a good team. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's move on to some Twitter questions. Now, we did get a bunch of submissions, but we're only going to hit on maybe one or two today. We'll hit on some more of them next week. But first off, Jarrett sent in Bubble TJ Warren or Hoodie Mellow. Who you got? I don't want nothing to do with TJ Warren. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with it. Hoodie Mellow is going to be a thing for the next 20 years. He's just going to show up to Lifetime Fitnesses and just be wrecking people constantly. I don't know why he's not trying to rock it in NBA games. I'm kind of kidding, but that dude's a legend right now when he's rocking that hoodie. Hoodie Mellow is, is a legend, but... Ah, give me give me bubble TJ oh, Warren. God. He's doing it in real games. Oh. He's putting this up in real games. Yeah, Melo's had a you know, he's had a really nice season coming back. I don't know how he wasn't in the NBA last year. I mean, what he's doing with Portland is I mean, he deserved to be on a roster last year after he was let go from Houston. But Hoodie Mello's a lifetime player. <laughs> he's a lifetime player. He does it in the offseason. I mean, Hoodie Mello is an offseason type player. He's a good player. Carmelo Anthony is a good player in the NBA. Hoodie Mello is a great player in the practice gym. Bubble TJ Warren, I guess the, the stands are empty too right now for <laughs> Bubble TJ Warren. Same amount of fans watching probably live. That's true. The next question comes from Neil, and he's wondering, with Giannis's contract ending soon, is it possible that he takes a smaller LeBron-type contract to build a championship team in Milwaukee? I think it all depends on this year. I think the fans have known this. I think the front office has known this. I think Giannis has known this without saying anything. If this year doesn't go well, I mean, this is, they were rolling. They have a deep roster. They have the pieces. They have Budenholzer. They got the right, everything's going right right now. And honestly, the East is kind of looking at its wounds a little bit. Boston is looking pretty spry. I've talked about Toronto at depth, but there's no reason that the Bucks shouldn't get to the finals this year. Now, I don't think they need to necessarily win the finals this year to keep Giannis's interest, but if there's another Eastern Conference final exit for this team, I there's some wear and tear mentally that you got Giannis is going to start questioning if he needs more because this is the era of the big three. This is the era of you got to have stars on stars on stars, and Chris Middleton's a nice player. He's going to be all NBA this year, most likely, probably making the third team. He'll make some team of some sort, but then you're surrounded by George Hill, Brooke Lopez, Dante DiVincenzo, Pat Connaughton. You know, Giannis is raising the level of these guys' play. And I think at some point, if they can't get past that ceiling of the Eastern Conference Finals, I think Giannis is going to be looking for an easier way to get there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they need to get to the NBA Finals this year for them to feel confident with Giannis. And maybe even, you know, if they lose in the Finals, maybe that's not even enough getting there. But I don't think he would even – I don't think he'd consider a smaller contract in Milwaukee either. I mean, they have to – he's one of the top five players in the NBA, top three players in the NBA. you got to be able to build around him, and if they can't build around him this year, he's in his – I mean, he's coming into his prime, in his prime. I don't know if, what he's going to get done in Milwaukee if they can't do it this year. And Mike Budenholzer, great coach. Needs to be better at playoff adjustments. Last year in that Toronto series, they're up 2-0, fell behind a little bit, and they just never came back. So this year's a big year for Mike Budenholzer, I think, as much as it is for Giannis in Milwaukee. But that's all we have time for for episode one. Thank you for listening.
Follow Pro City Hoops on Twitter at Pro City Hoops. And we'll be back next week with episode two. Thank <laughs> you.